Lord, you've been amazing. And you continue to be amazing. You continue to, to blow our minds, Lord, in our understanding of who you are and how you are so um, willing to help us out in every situation and to reveal yourself in, in, in ways that we had never thought of before. It's been 18 years, Lord, that I've been walking this walk with you. And there have been many times, Lord, when I felt like turning back, there have been many times when I said, you know what, this is just too hard. I'm going back into that life. And yet, Lord, I couldn't help the fact that if I went, those were all my decisions. I could choose to do that. You will always respect my right to choose. But, Lord, where would I go? And how would I go, Lord, without you in my life? And I believe, Lord, it's that kind of intimacy that I was desperate for. Lord, the same kind of intimacy that you desire from each one of us that would keep us from going back into that life. So many people, Lord, have never known the intimacy that you desire to give to each one of us. And so, Lord, I pray that tonight that maybe something in my journey will touch somebody's heart and they will realize that we're not just talking about behavior modification, that what we're talking about is relational restoration and how that only comes through you. And I pray, Lord, that you will guide us and that everyone here, Lord, will have an opportunity to see you just a little bit more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <laughs> and so what I mean about sleep deprivation is I've had about one hour of sleep. And it's interesting, let me, let me go back just a little bit. And uh, probably about six, seven years ago, I was at Michigan camp meeting and I was having my devotion time with the Lord. And, and you're going to hear all of the stuff that was going on in my life. And, you know, when I got baptized, when I got... When I came up out of that water, I wasn't straight, ready to date, mate, and procreate, as many of you would, might imagine, but that's kind of like Catholic understanding, right? That water wasn't holy water, it was just regular water. And you probably realized, too, that about 10 minutes after you were baptized, that God didn't take away your history and your memory either. But what he did is he was beginning this journey with me, and it wasn't easy. It was so tough to go against the things that I had allowed to become master of my life, the things that had become strongholds, the addictions and the drives that I cultivated and set up as patterns in my life. But Jesus was far more faithful to me than I was to him. So about six years ago, I'm in the presence of the Lord, having my devotion, and I, I like to think about the cross as long as I can. I, I don't do it for an hour. Ellen White says we should do it for a thoughtful hour every day. But in my devotional time, after I have my devotion, I'll, I'll just clear my mind and I'll start thinking about what Jesus accomplished for me on the cross. So in particular, one day I was having my devotion and, and normally my communication, and I don't even know if you'll follow this, but try to if you can, is usually between Jesus and me. I didn't get God. He was kind of elusive to me. I saw him as this arbitrary character that was looking to thump me in the head every time I messed up. But I understood who Jesus was as a personal savior. Can I get a witness, right? So in my devotions, it was usually Jesus that I would dialogue with. And sometimes, you know, I would be standing there hanging on to the cross and the precious blood of Jesus would be dripping down on me because sometimes that's the only safety that I could find with the battle going on inside my mind. And so then many times Jesus would come up from behind the cross. He's not on the cross. He rose from the dead. He, he accomplished everything that I needed to give me the victory now. And so I would embrace my Savior and I would have this hug from my Savior. So in particular on this day, it was me and God. I was in the presence of God the Father. And it wasn't this omnipotent, omnipresence presence of God. Instead, what it was was a, a, a dedicated father to his son. And as I was in the presence of God, it was like there's this big, huge wooden door behind me. Big, huge wooden door, and it's got these big metal clasps on it. And behind that door, 
was everything that I'd come from. My misunderstanding of God, my misunderstanding of what love was, my misunderstanding of intimacy, my misunderstanding of even Christianity. And God said to me, he said, Mike, if you want to shut the door to all of that, you can do that anytime. Six years ago, stay with me, right? And so as I'm in the presence of God, I said, well, yeah, why not? And as I'm in the presence of God, I, I realize everything that the Lord had saved me from, 20 years of living in the gay culture, living within two miles of five gay bars, acting out sexually on an average of three times a week. And so as I'm in the presence of God, he said, Mike, if you want to shut that door, you can do that anytime. But brothers and sisters, it had to be my choice. It had to be my decision. He wasn't going to drag me to it. He wasn't going to force me to shut that door. I could shut that door whenever I want. And as I've seen the goodness of what God had given to me, the thought came in my, mat, my mind, of course I want to shut it. And I turned and I, and I shoved this big door and I shut that door and boom, it shut. And it wasn't like a, a wimpy, flimsy door that somebody could just push open. It was definite and it was determined and all of that was gone. And wow, I was in awe because all of that stuff was gone now and I'm just in the presence of God. And as I'm in the presence of God, it was like, wow, God, this is really good. Is there anything else? And God said, no, just enjoy it. And as I was there, it wasn't even a matter of, I was worshiping him, I was in the presence of worship, but it was just like, he was giving to me in that moment. And as I was being filled in that moment, it was like, wow, Lord, thank you. That I had the choice to shut that door at any time. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't open that door back up. But just remember this, if you would, that at any time, you have the choice to shut that door anytime you want to. Isn't that sweet? And that as I was in the presence of God, I, I realized that this was the best thing. How is it that being in the presence of God is better than an illicit sexual situation? And, and, and brothers and sisters, I, I speak a little bit on the raw side because I really was desperate for some of these answers when I was your age. I wish somebody would have been real with me because I really wanted to know what was going on inside of my head and how is it that I could be an authentic Christian and still battle with these things that were inside my mind. So I took, a, I, I took a, um, an example from you and so I just kept my mouth shut and I didn't act like I had any problems. But that didn't help me. And at 20 years old, I, I walked out and walked into the gay culture and they had their arms open wide. And so here I am again in the presence of God, and I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And so I went to the camp meeting, and, and, and I was listening to a brother of mine uh, give a sermon about the uh, rich young ruler. Remember what Jesus told him? He said, he said, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And I'm looking at God, and I said, Lord, are you telling me to do that? Is that what you're saying? And I said, you know, I'm not very smart, Lord. I'm just a hairdresser, and so you're going to have to make it very plain to me. And I said, I'm going to throw Gideon's, what is the, the fleece, right? And I said, if you want me to sell everything that I have, then you're going to have to affirm that one more time today. One more time today. And I said, you know, it's up to you whenever you want, and I'm just going to go about my day. But I need at least one more example. And so that afternoon, I was in the bookstore, and we were kind of promoting some of the stuff that Coming Out Ministries has. And as I was sitting there, there was this lovely lady, and she had a table beside me, and she was promoting her devotional. And at the end of the day, we were exhausted. You know what it's like to talk for six hours? Some of you do. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. So anyway, as I was talking, and I'm very used to talking for six hours, so at the end of the day, after talking for six hours, I was exhausted. I, I couldn't decide, did, did I want to go to dinner or did I want to go to bed? And so as I'm having this dilemma in my, inside my mind and I'm heading out of the gymnasium to go to the cafeteria or to go to my room, all of a sudden the Lord just said, you know, you work next to that lady all day and you never even introduced yourself. It's not very polite. 
And I thought, okay, I can go back and introduce myself. So I went back and I said, hi, my name is Mike. I'm really sorry. I never introduced myself. I go, hey, you know, you got a book that you're promoting. What's your book about? Honestly, I didn't care about her book. I cared nothing about her book. I was just being polite. And she was exhausted too, and I think tired of talking for six hours. And she goes, I think she was blowing me off. I think she said, oh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a Moses story. I go, oh, a Moses story. I go, what do you mean by that? And she goes, oh, you know, a Moses story. Again, the second clue, like, get out of here. I'm done with you, right? And, and so I don't know why, but I persisted and I said, no, really, I don't know what you mean by that. Can you explain that to me? What do you mean by a Moses story? And she said to me, she said, well, my husband and I were living in California and we decided to sell everything that we have and give it to the poor and come and work for God. I said, what? And she looked at me and she said, we sold everything that we have and we decided to work for God. I go, could you say that one more time? <laughs> and she said it, of course, one more time. And then I realized, wow, God had spoken. Well, I promptly put my house up for sale. It was for sale for a year. I have my salon business in my basement. I had my clients that were coming to me. And at that time, I thought that God was going to move me, you know, straight forward into ministry and that I was going to walk away from everything. And my, but my clients reminded me, they said, you know what, you're praying, but we're praying too. And we're praying that God's not going to sell your house and that you're going to stay here and do our hair. Well, they won, I guess, because my house didn't sell. But then all of a sudden, as the ministry has been progressing and moving, God has taken us into some incredible places around the world. As a matter of fact, Sunday, I, I have the opportunity to go to Africa from here. But um, not only has he opened up opportunities for us, but also he's opened up other people who have been willing to tell their story and some incredible relationships that have developed in the last couple of years. So let me try to make this long story even longer. As I was convicted again, I was uh, away from my house from October until January. I wasn't even home. I didn't know who was mowing the yard. I didn't know if the pipes were breaking or what. And so again, I just realized that I probably needed to try to sell my house again. Two weeks, boom, for sale, it was gone. And so last night, at, well, no, this morning at 3.30 in the morning, I finally got the last of my stuff packed and ready for this trip to Washington, D.C., and then also to Africa, and also as I was leaving my house. And, and people have been saying, they go, okay, great, now that you're moving, where are you going? And I go, I really don't know. Even my colleague, the, the treasurer of our ministry, he said, so Mike, you know, where are we going to send the letters and stuff? I go, I don't know. I don't even have a P.O. box. I, I'm free. And, and you know, it's something because you, you can amass these things. And, you know, uh, I, I decorated my house to, just the way I liked it. I've got things that I've had since I was in my 20s, you know, pictures of people, things that I've collected. You know what I'm talking about. And to look at those things and to realize that even though my heart was connected to some of these things, ultimately, the Lord convicted me that I shouldn't sell it, that I should just give it away. And now what was so cool is I came up with this thing and said, you know, it's better than dying. Giving away your stuff is better than dying because when you die, you don't know who's got your stuff. But what's really cool is when you give away your stuff, then you go to their house and you go, hey, that used to be mine. Hey, Mike, look what I did with your table. Hey, Mike, look what I did with this thing. So anyway, it, it's a really good thing. But that's where I'm at today. And, and I don't feel like a loss. Instead, what I feel is a freedom. And you know what? That comes only from God. And that's the intimacy that he's been teaching me that I can trust him. And I guess a couple of years ago, I just wasn't ready for that. But he knew when the time would be ready and he would get me there. And some amazing miracles have happened in the process as well. So I just want to thank you for letting me explain that. Coming Out Ministry started uh, eight and a half years ago, almost nine years ago, with five individuals that came together. And we all had ministries of our own because we thought that we were the only person that would come out of homosexuality and come back into Christianity. 
wow, what a novel idea, right? But then all of a sudden, as we met each other, we thought, wow, one testimony is good, but the Bible says that by the testimony of two or three shall a thing be established. And so we got together and we formed Coming Out Ministries. But what we realized is as we went out into the world and started to tell our stories together, is that we started to realize that some of the secrecy or the, the uh, silence that was in the church was the fact that people just didn't even know if people could be redeemed from something like that. And that we hear voices, and there are voices in our church even that are saying that they can't change and that that's hate speech to say that they can. All right. And so here we are, Coming Out Ministries, coming to your town. And we realize now that this ministry has gone much further because people have come up to us and they said, you know, I'm not gay. But what you were talking about certainly hit, hit home for me. And we realize now that Coming Out Ministries is more like Revelation chapter 8 where it says, come out of her, my people. Isn't that us? Isn't that all of us? We should all wear a shirt that says, hey, I'm coming out. How about you, right? Put it on your baby. You know, put it on your grandmother. We should all wear the same shirt. And then guess what? Wouldn't that pull the steam out of the gay community? It's like, hey, I'm coming out too. Would that be something? Look for that T-shirt. I'm going to work on that, okay? So we've had the opportunity. Some of the people have left, and then other people have, have taken in the ranks and, and picked up where those people have left off. There's a young man. You can see him, uh, one, two, three, the guy with the really dark hair, the really thick, bushy, dark hair, the one next to me. And his name is um, Harrison Omanya. He's from Costa Rica, an incredible young man. He was an elder in his church struggling with pornography addiction and masturbation. And even sexual sin, he was uh, dating a girl, and they were being sexual, and here he is an elder in the church. And when Coming Out Ministries came and spoke in his area, he was the event host that took us around, and he was convicted. And now he actually is our very first associate speaker to work with Coming Out Ministries. And he's even learned to speak English. He's very good, very smart, and very bright. We're really very fortunate to have him. I had the opportunity two years ago in Cuba. I was on a mission trip, and I, <laughs> I thought that I thought that that we had arrived. I thought that we had it all worked out. And here on this mission trip, I found out what real hard work is really all about. And as we would have our meetings in the morning, we would have these incredible worships that would go almost two hours. But let me tell you, that was like fortification. That's exactly what we needed to be able to do God's work throughout the day. And I met this really incredible young lady, and her name is Kezia. And Kezia, as we were there in the, in the worship time, she started to really be convicted by some of the things that we were sharing during the worship time. And right before she left to go back home, she realized and admitted that she was also struggling with some sexual issues. And she came forward, and that began her process of healing as well. And Kezia is here, and she's going to be talking tomorrow. She's going to give two presentations, one her testimony, and then also she's going to talk about um, the victory presentation, how to find victory over pornography. Uh, Kezia, would you just stand for us? Isn't that amazing? Isn't God good? Hallelujah for sure. Thank you, Kezia. And so then we uh, had a documentary that we made a couple of years ago. And basically, um, Andy, are you up there? Can you skip, can you skip, skip the slide that's next because it's a video. Skip this one if you can. Yeah, skip that. And then what I'd like to do is, is play for you the trailer to our film. And this is the documentary that we filmed. And it's about five individuals caught up in same-sex attraction and how, how it happened, how we uh, got kind of uh, off on the wrong path, and then also about how God interrupted our journey. And if you would just play that clip for us. I would 
would look in the mirror and I would punch myself in the face and I would scream at God and I would yell at him and I would say, why God? Can we get some volume, why? please? Why did you create a boy when I was supposed to be a girl? So I prayed and I said, I don't want to live, Lord. Take me now. I, don't, I just don't want to go through what's coming. I felt dirty. I felt, well, I had been tainted. I thought, okay, well, obviously this is something that I can't really tell anyone about. I'm crying in my bed at night because these things are happening, and Jesus, I can't hear him anymore. I said, how dare you? say that I'm an abomination when you made me this way. That's not fair. I didn't choose this thing. I didn't want this thing. Why would I join a religion that tells me that I'm just going to die for being who I am? Is this a different God than I was acquainted with when I was little? I finally decided to just accept who I was and give up. I believe that I was gay and that it didn't match up with God's word. And I was like, oh well, I don't know what to do about that. I just kind of pushed everybody aside, including my mom. I just felt like nobody else has been there. Why would she? I was desperate to be secure in my sin. I, I did whatever I could. I was, I was willing, tell me lies, tell me lies, lie to me. I found myself on my knees at the end of my bed and I said, God, how, I don't know how you could forgive me. You still want me? Because everybody else rejected me, everybody else turned their back on me. You want to go too now? It's as though the devil was not going to let me go. And if he could not entice me, he would turn to violence. It's time for us to talk about this. It's time for us to offer help. If he is who I've been reading that he is, it all makes sense. How like God to show me that when I really started opening up myself and making myself the most vulnerable I've ever been in my entire life, that what I get instead is not rejection, but acceptance. I shed my blood for you so that you can claim this victory. It's freely yours. All you have to do is give your heart to me. So there's a, a fifth member, a fifth person in the movie, and her name is Anna. And Anna is very precious to us. At the first time that we spoke at the GYC, I think about six years ago? Six years ago? Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, Anna's mother was sitting there, and Anna had just told her mother that she was gay. And she said, you know what, I'm not going to go to GYC, I'm not going to go to the meetings, I'm just going to hang out with Dad. And so Andrea went alone to the opening meetings and she saw coming out ministries being introduced and she saw on the bulletin, she saw the gay puzzle and she's like, what? And the Lord told her, that, I'm going to tell your story a little bit, is that okay? All right. And the Lord said, the Lord said, go buy her a ticket. And she goes, that's 180 bucks. And the Lord said, she can't go if you don't buy her a ticket. She said, okay. So she went and she bought a ticket and she took it back and she knew that Anna wasn't going to go, but she threw it on the bed and she said, I didn't know if you wanted to go at all, but here's the bulletin and here's a ticket in case you change your mind. I told you, Mom, I'm not going. Oh, well, here you go. So anyway, she was leafing through the bulletin. Sure enough, she saw the gay puzzle and became furious. You know, and she threw it down and just said, what? What is the Adventist, story? What is the Adventist um, church now throwing around? What kind of hate are they throwing around now? I'm going to these meetings. I'm going to go to each and every one of these meetings and I'm going to find out what kind of trash they're talking. And I'm sure Andrea was just sitting there with a big fat smile on her face. I'm not sure, but I wasn't there. 
But what did happen is Anna came to those meetings and there was her mother and Anna had her arms folded across and her face was beet red and the look on her face was anything but joyful. And her mother dutifully sitting right beside her praying. And you could just tell that there was just an oppression going on. And she stayed for all those meetings. And at the end of the meetings, I went up to Anna and her mom and I said, so what did you think of our meetings? Not knowing what I was going to get. But she said, I really expected to hear hate and, and, and rejection and judgment. And she said, I am so confounded. She said, instead I heard love, acceptance, and compassion. Isn't God amazing? And so Anna agreed to be uh, filmed in our film. And I'd like to introduce you to Anna's mother. This is Andrea Decker. And I think she's a very brave woman, a very brave woman. Thank you, Andrea. And she's going to talk tomorrow about what it's like to have a gay daughter. I think that from my perspective, that's the, that's the program that I would want to hear the most, is what is that like? And because, raise your hand if you have someone in your family that's gay, somebody that you love that's gay. And how is it that you can love them and draw them into a relationship with God and still not uh, sound judgy or preachy or reject them and push them further away? And, I, and what's been so amazing is that Andrea and I, we have this friendship that's developed over the last six years, and there have been many tears on both sides of that equation praying for Anna. But just on the premiere alone of the film, uh, we showed it to about 800 people across the street from Andrews University at the Village Church. And the union president was there, and he said, with 800 people here, I think that we should take time and pray for Anna. And so everybody divided up into twos, and they started to pray for Anna. Can you imagine what that meant to a mother that was sitting there knowing that 800 people were praying for her daughter? And so Andrea's going to talk tomorrow about the different uh, stages that she went through in the process of understanding where her daughter is. And I think that you'll find that very powerful. And you'll probably have a lot of questions as well. So um, I hope that you'll enjoy the programs that, that Amar has set up. And thank you again for this opportunity. So let's just move on. Contrary to popular belief, God does not hate anyone who's gay. All right, that was really bad, but that was kind of typical. Do you believe that? Do you? Of course he doesn't hate anyone who's gay. You know what I love about the Bible is when I started to read those verses for myself, instead of hearing the judgment that I was getting from the church, I started to realize that God wasn't judging the homosexual. He was judging the behavior. He said, when a man lies with another man as a man lies with a woman, it is an abomination, not him. And so God was saying that you're not an abomination because I understand that there are reasons why you're attracted to the same sex, but don't act on it because that behavior is the abomination because it pulls you away from the identity that I gave you. And then as I struggled with transgenderism also, I started to read that verse and he described the behavior as abomination. When a woman wears the clothing of another man, that it is an abomination. And so God understands that there are reasons why I felt that I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. But he said, don't practice it because every time you practice it, in my little mind when I was an eight-year-old boy and my aunt would take me into the bathroom and tease my hair to look like a girl, what it did is it gave me this great satisfaction that maybe one day I could be believable as a girl. And what it did is it pushed me further away from the masculinity that God uh, uh, created me to be. And so this pulling away from this identity, that's the abomination to God. Why? Because it's a rejection of the blessing that he desired to, give to, desired to give to each one of us. Does that start to make sense? 
And so we don't want to reject somebody that struggles with these things. We want to let them know that they have value and that God loves them. And we need to be patient with them and loving with them because there's a misunderstanding about either their understanding of who God is or their, even their understanding of themselves. And there's a process to that. And we need to be patient with them and to walk this out with them. So contrary to popular Christian belief, God does not hate anyone who's gay. What can I say now? Amen. All right. I remember it was one Friday night after I came out. I couldn't go to church. I, I couldn't talk to them about what I was struggling with. And I went to a gay bar on a Friday night, and I ordered my drink, and I was sitting at the bar. And there was a guy beside me, and he'd ordered his drink. And then this other guy comes up to the bartender, and he says, hey, you know, I'd like to have this or whatever. And the guy and the bartender gives him his drink, and he says, hey, happy Sabbath. And I looked, and I said, what? And then the guy to my right, he looked at him, and he said, oh, yeah, happy Sabbath. And I'm sitting there next to these two Sabbath keepers, and I looked, and I go, yeah, happy Sabbath. Here we realized that we were four individuals that were raised as Seventh-day Adventists, and we had all either left the church or we were pushed and shoved out of the church, and we started to share our stories. How sad that the only place that we found that we could celebrate the Sabbath was in a gay bar on a Friday night. Do you start to understand? So when I was 40 years old and came back into church culture, you can imagine I was a mess. 20 years of living as a sexual addict, 20 years of living as a homosexual, I said to God, I want to know how. I want to know why from my earliest thoughts that it was a girl trapped in a boy's body. It wasn't sexualized until puberty, but I, I want to know why these thoughts happen. I, even though I tried to imagine what it would be like to be with a woman, my mind just kept going back to, to men. And so, Lord, you have to answer this question for me. And so God was generous, even though there weren't any resources in our denomination, as I was coming to God with my issues and my questions, he was always willing to address that. And it took some time. And in the process, I started to understand more of why I had these thoughts. And I want to share that with you. What happens for every little boy and girl is they don't know that they're male or female when they're born. And then what happens is between the ages of one and three, the child starts to realize, oh, I'm either like mom or I'm like dad. And for little boys, the transition is a little bit different because girls are already connected to their mothers. Mothers are warm and cuddly and, and, and affectionate and patient. You know, but dads are kind of you know, dangerous and exciting and, 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 and um, um, curious, right? And so for the little boy, when his, this cement that's been wet, it starts to take shape in the masculine, what happens is the little boy has to transition from the mother to the father. And in the transition, the dad takes a kid and throws him in the air. You know, and the dad's laughing and the kid's terrified and mom's screaming, but he catches him. You know, and he catches him and the little boy starts to realize, oh, dads are dangerous and this is kind of fun. And then little boys like to wear baseball caps like their dad and they want to be policemen and firemen like their dad. All of this is healthy gender stamping. What that means is the cement starts to take on masculinity and little boys get affirmed by other little boys in school. That's why they like to skip rocks. That's why they like to play cops and robbers. That's why little boys don't like girls because girls are gross. That's why little girls don't like boys because boys have cooties. We all know this. But all of that is healthy gender stamping so that as the cement hardens in their gender identity, they start to understand who they are. And then as this affirmation grows, then eventually at puberty, the sex that is the mystery becomes the attraction. Let me say that again because a lot of people miss that. The immutable law is at puberty, the sex that is the mystery becomes the attraction. So if I've been affirmed by masculinity all my early days by my father, by the kids in school, right? then all of a sudden that natural development is that the sex that is a mystery at puberty becomes the attraction. So for me, my dad was in the Navy. He'd be gone sometimes six to eight months at a time. And for a little boy that's only between the ages of one and three, that could be half my life. 
But then when my dad was home, he was a hot-headed Italian, he was raging, he was angry, and he was abusive. And so as this little boy was transitioning from his mother to his father, he either wasn't there or he was aggressive and abusive. And in my subconscious, I said, no, thank you. If that's my gender, I'd rather be like my mom. Not given any other options, I started to pattern after my mom. All of a sudden, when I became conscious about the ages of four and five, I remember thinking to myself, listen, something's wrong. I don't want the brown or black shoes. I want the pretty orange and green shoes that my sisters get. I want the cute little bonnets that they wear to church. I want those pretty frilly dresses. I didn't know what it was, but I definitely knew that it went against everything that everyone was talking to me about. My dad wouldn't allow me to have dolls, even a football doll. You know, he would throw it away in front of my mom and say, I don't want my son to have a doll. And so my mom would fish it out of the garbage. She'd clean it up and she'd give it back to me. But I knew that every time that I was um, celebrating or acting by playing dolls or playing dress up as a girl that I got punished for it. So what that meant is that I had to put on a good front in front of people, but that I had to go undercover if I was going to play with dolls or cross dress. And so you can imagine what the depression that this little kid was going through, right? And so as I was finding this, this, this conflict going on inside my mind, this was what I call the first knot that Satan was putting in the rope of my life. Is that before I was even conscious, I was transgendered, thinking that I was a girl and that I should be a girl. So then what happened is I was completely surrounded by girls. If you look in this picture, I'm the only boy in that picture. I'm smack dab in the middle. I've got three older girls ahead of me and then three younger girls behind me. And that was another uh, knot that Satan put in the rope of my life, being surrounded by femininity. There were no other boys, and so I patterned after them. And like I said, my aunt would take me in the bathroom, and she'd tease my hair, and they'd dress me up. I loved it. I loved playing jump rope and hopscotch, and I was pretty athletic doing those kind of things. But when it came to the boys in school, when I started going to school, they started to pick up on my effeminate mannerisms. And they started calling me sissy, queer, faggot, little girl. And you know, the Bible says that our words have the power of life and death. And you know, those kids pronounced a sentence over me or a curse over me that I didn't want. I didn't ask for it, but it couldn't help the fact that it had an effect on me. And what that did is the one thing that I needed was masculine affirmation. I needed to know that I belonged and that it was acceptable just as I was, but instead I got more rejection. And so doesn't that make sense then, that if I was rejected by my dad and then rejected by the kids in school, doesn't that make it seem like there's this deficit, this desperation for male love? I think it's an innate thing that we all desire to have. And so if I can't get love in the right way, the way it was intended to be, doesn't it make sense that I would be vulnerable to love, to find love any way that I could find acceptance. And so in my mind, I thought that I had to have a sex change. I thought that then maybe God would accept me because I knew he didn't accept me the way I was. And so I thought that if I had a sex change, that then my attractions would be okay and my ideas about who I am would be all right. Can you see how this can get messed up? And I think that it's very genuine when you see somebody who's transgender. It might be offensive for you, but I think if you can look past the, the superficial long enough and recognize that there's some trauma that's gone on in this person's life, whether it's female or male, that needs to be addressed, a knot that was in the rope of their life somewhere along the way. So as I started growing, the hereditary factor, there was something else that was going on. And the Bible talks about, in Exodus 20, verse 5, the, the sins of the generation to the third and fourth generation. And that had been going on in my family as well. But even science confirms it. The Lord was showing me through science and the word that there were reasons why these things were happening in my life. And let me explain. What happens is in the DNA, when the sperm and the egg come together, they bring with it the history of three to four generations before it. And so what happens is the things that you're indulging in now, those are the things that you're leaving as a legacy for your future generations. 
And so starting off with me, I'm the fourth generation. That's my mom and dad when they got married. And so they were virgins when they got married, but they brought in their DNA three to four generations of what had happened before them. Let me start with my mom. My mother was molested by her father when she was just a young girl. My grandmother was raped by her stepfather, and my great-grandmother was a prostitute during the Depression. So just on my mother's side alone, you can see the history of sexual sin. And while I wasn't born gay, I was born with the propensity of sexual sin. And Ella White makes it very clear that I'm not held accountable for the history of their sins, except as I indulge in them. Does that make sense? So just because I was born with those tendencies, I'm not held accountable for them unless I'm practicing them. On my father's side, my dad was addicted to pornography. He was also a sexual addict, two of the things that I struggled with as well. My grandmother in the red sweater was raised by a single mother because her father shot and killed a man that he thought was sleeping with, her, his, well, with my grandmother's mom. So not only do we have sexual issues on both sides of the family, we have alcoholism, we have drug addiction, and we have anger management problems. And so these are some of the things that get passed on through the DNA. And if you take a look at your scary closet, you can probably find some of them yourself. And it started to answer some of the questions for me. My father had an affair with a backslidden Seventh-day Adventist waitress that worked in our restaurant. And yes, that's how the Adventist message came into my life. It's through my dad's affair. And so my father left our family, our good Catholic family, and he left. And my mother found his uh, pornography magazines. But she could tell that, hey, Mike's got some issues. Maybe these would help him. So my mother gave me my father's pornography magazines at 10 years old. Can you imagine that? They've done studies on the, on the brains of young children, and did you know that when young children have been exposed to pornography, it hooks them, it creates this drive. Their little minds aren't even developed enough to be able to understand the onslaught of what's being happened to them through their eyes. But to a brain that is fully developed, and for a man that's about 28 years old, for a girl about 26, but to a fully developed mind, their first exposure to pornography is repulsive, but to a child it hooks them. The pornography industry knows this, and what they're doing is they're targeting your children. There was a young man that came to me, he was a seminary student, and he came up to me and he says, I've been addicted to pornography since I was seven. His father was a pastor, his mother was a nurse. They kept the computer in the family room so that they could access what their children were looking at. But this little boy, he went to school, to an Adventist school, and in second grade, seven years old, his best friend came with a piece of pornography that he printed from the family computer, and that hooked him. And so what this little boy would do is he would set his alarm for 3 o'clock in the morning every night so that he could get on the family computer and look at pornography. This followed him all the way through his early years into his adulthood, even as a student at Andrews and also at Southern University. He said to me, he confided to me, he said, Mike, I never had to pay for sex because there were always girls willing to have sex with me in our Adventist education. Is that shocking to you? <clears throat> but this is what's going on in the world today. And so for me, that's what began my addiction to pornography at 10 years old. And, well, fortunately, back then, it wasn't as available as it is today. How sad that we have children that are being slimed on a rapid rate. Did you know that only 3% of boys and 17% of girls have never seen pornography? That should be shocking to you. Our president, Ted Wilson, did a study, and he found that only 49%, that 49% of our young students, <laughs> our Adventist students, think that gay marriage is acceptable. What kind of education are we giving our children in these schools? And here's what I believe is really what's going on. And, and, and Kezia opened my eyes to that. When I was talking to Kezia about her, her own issues, and here she was, she was helping out with the with youth, pro, youth programs, and, and she was having sex with some of the members in her youth program, and she was addicted to pornography and masturbation. And I, I looked at her and I said, you know what the Bible says about sex, don't you? 
And she said, well, not really, because the church never says anything. <clears throat> and we hear from YouTube and all of these other television programs and, and the Internet, and they're telling us that it's our freedom, and so we really don't know what the Bible says about that. And so that alerted me to the fact that if we're not talking about it, the world is, and our silence, in my opinion, is promoting and pushing this agenda of the world. We have a responsibility. <clears throat> That's me at 12 years old. Take a look at that little guy. Do you see the smile on his face? Can you see that? Right? Pleasant. Pleasant little kid, right? And so this was me at 12 years old. This is my three-for-one special that Satan gave me. <laughs> I was talking about these, these knots in the rope that Satan would give me. And so on this particular day, I got three. And so this little boy had just spent two weeks with his father, with his new bride. Imagine the confusion going through a little boy's head when you leave your mother, and you're there with your sisters and your dad and his new wife, 12 years old, and all of a sudden you see your dad touching his new wife the way he used to touch your mother. Imagine watching this woman touch your dad the way your mom used to. Imagine the, the little boy's heart who's breaking, thinking about his mom that's home alone, and that every time, even when you have fun, you know, with your new family, that you're thinking about your mom who's home alone, and you think about her pining away, and, and she, she should be a part of this, this family, right? And so after two weeks of that, my dad pulls into the driveway, he drops us off. My father hadn't paid the mortgage in, in a year, and so we were losing the house. My mother had an auction the night before and sold everything that we owned other than what she could put in my uncle's truck. And so we were about to leave to go to Michigan, and we were going to live in this low-income housing project, because that was the best my mom could do after working two jobs and with four children. And so just before we left, my mother gave us one hour to say goodbye to our friends, and I said, okay. So I went to 10 different schools within 12 years of my early education. In third grade, I went to three different schools. So even if I had a friend that was male, it wasn't long before we were up and out, and, and I would be stuck with my sisters again. And so it was very difficult, but I had two male friends in my neighborhood, and I got with them, and I said, listen, um, I've got to go. And, and I said, I'm never going to see you again. And then all of a sudden, my two fr friends, they said, listen, we have a new game that we want to show you. And they stepped off a few feet away from me, and they started to engage in a homosexual act in front of me at 12 years old. I was shocked by what I saw. I said, I got to go, and I never saw my friends again. I got in my uncle's car. I drove five hours to Detroit, Michigan, and that's that little boy on that particular day, standing in front of his truck. Can you imagine what was going on in my mind? And yet I was learning, I was learning that the best I could do with all of these slime balls that the enemy was throwing me is I would just stuff them inside and put on a good face. Let me be whatever you want. I had this fantasy inside my head that if I was a twin, because I didn't know who I was myself, I didn't fit in with my sisters because I wasn't a girl, I didn't fit in with the boys because I wasn't acting like they liked, or acted like they acted. Instead, I would look at myself and I really didn't know who I was, but I, I fantasized that if I had a twin brother, that I could look at him and I would know exactly who I was. I could study him to find out who I was. Does that make sense? And so I didn't have that opportunity. And so you can imagine that for me, this went on until I was 20 years old. I went to um, academy eventually. I, um, oh, I want to talk about Proverbs 27.7. Let me paraphrase it. Basically, it says that if you've had a full meal, you don't need dessert. But to those who are starving, even something bitter will satisfy. And you know what? This was happening for my mom as well. If I couldn't receive love from men in the right way, then doesn't it make sense that I would be vulnerable for love in the wrong way? And this was happening for my mother. She was molested by her father. She was abandoned by my father. Now my mother found that the only way that she could gain attention from men was to give herself away sexually. If she didn't bring her lovers home, she would stay out all night with them. It was a really tough time for us. My dad made us the offer that if we come to live with him, that he would send us away to the academy. And how sad that I actually found some structure and foundation by going to academy, leaving both my mother and my father. 
But I remember that I went and my roommate had been through, in, um, through juvenile detention. He was very familiar with homosexuality, but I was a willing victim. And one night our, our wrestling turned into something sexual. But I'd given my heart to the Lord. I'd become a Christian and I wanted to be a Christian. And as I laid there in bed that night, I remember thinking to myself, this isn't what God wants. And I cried myself to sleep. But what was the most profound and most shocking thing that night was the fact that it actually felt good. For the first time, I experienced some type of love that actually satisfied. And it was shocking to me because now I realized that I was all those things that all those boys and girls said that I was, that I was a gay, that I was a faggot. My roommate got kicked out for smoking pot. I got a girlfriend. I went to the first Bible conference. I gave my heart to the Lord again. I thought that if I started going through the motions that maybe something would just kick in and maybe all of a sudden I could have a wife and kids. I dropped out of uh, Andrews University. I broke up with my girlfriend. And I, and I was desperate to find some answers to these questions because I was still trapped in masturbation and fantasy in my mind. And I believe that every time that I prayed that God would relieve me of these things, that I held God's hands because I was still practicing masturbation that was locking me into this understanding and these thoughts inside my head. And the Lord wanted to heal me from that, but because of my behaviors, I was locking myself into that. I didn't know how to fix this, so at 20 years old, I remember moving down to Florida. I, I, I met this guy at church, and I thought, you know what? I watched him. I watched him for several months, and I thought, he's the guy that I'm going to tell my secret to. And I remember sitting down with him, and I said, well, can I talk to you? And he said, sure, Mike, what's up? And I said, well, I said, it's about women. He said, oh, I know what you mean. You turn them upside down, they all look the same. I was just as shocked as you were. And I realized that there was no way I could tell this man my secret. There was no way I was going to reveal to him what I was struggling with. And so I sat there with my smile on again. I thanked him for his time, and I walked out of church, and I said to God, that's the best you've got? That's the best you've got? I'm out of here. I'm done. I can't get my religion and my sexuality to come together. Where have you been? I've been praying and going through the motions and nothing's happening. So I'm out of here. And I went into the gay culture and they had their arms open wide. I remember going in. And as a matter of fact, I was so desperate for any kind of attention from men that I was raped by my first boyfriend. And I didn't even realize it for several years because even being raped was better than being ignored. And I thought that maybe if I had one relationship with one man that maybe God would understand. I'm just doing the best I can. And what I found is that my first lover was somebody that was already a sexual addict. He introduced me to things that I'd never even thought of before. And within a very short amount of time, I become a sexual addict. In 20 years, unfaithful in the five significant relationships I had, AIDS came out the very same year that I came out, 1981. I had a list of sex with men as often as three times in a week and as often as uh, three times in a day. You do the math over 20 years. Never used protection in that time. I had sex with men that would be dead three months later. And yet it wasn't enough to stop me. Every illicit situation was only creating the drive to do it again and again because it never gave me what I was looking for. It never gave me the acceptance and the love for men that I desired. <clears throat> I became what I call the poster child for the gay life. I was an aerobics instructor and a hairdresser, and I don't think you can get any more gay than that. This was my life. I was making a lot of money. I was doing television people's hair. And I, my best friend was a newscaster from NBC. I was working at the top salon in the area. I had a boyfriend. He was a millionaire with big blue eyes and big arms. We had the world by the tail. We had, uh, I was driving a convertible Mercedes. I had a condo on a lake. I had a house with a pool. I had everything that the world said was desirable. And yet it still wasn't enough to satisfy. About to turn 40 years old, I realized that here I am in this great house with my boyfriend and we were talking about buying a house together and, and yet still, like, is that it? 
Is there nothing more? And I would think about my life, even on a Saturday. I'd be laying there in front of the pool and I'd be thinking about my life and, and I would think, you know, is this really the, all that life has to offer? You know, more great trips, maybe more great cars or whatever, but there was something still that was longing in my heart and I would think about my life and I'd say, no way, no way would God ever want me back. And so I tell people that I had the total gay life. I drove a gay car, I lived in a gay house. Listen, I even had a gay dog. It's a little chihuahua, about six pounds. And so this was my life, totally accepted. And yet, as I was going through the motions of my life, there still there was something that wasn't satisfying. And I remember marching in the gay pride parades here in Washington, D.C. We were driving through the streets with, um, with Barbara, and I actually recognized one of the streets that I marched down in the gay pride parade when President Clinton was elected. And I remember seeing the signs of the Christians that said, God hates fags, thank God for AIDS. And you know, it didn't make me come to my senses. Instead, what it did is it pushed me further away from, the, from the, the Christians that I thought I was, that I used to call myself. It made me ashamed that I'd ever been a Christian before. And what it did is it pushed me now into the community that I now called my family. This was my life. Dirty bookstores, gay bars three nights a week. My mind had become the fulfillment of Genesis 6, verse 5. Every thought inside my head was only evil all the time. I was only always looking for an illicit situation. I could not stop. Proverbs 14, 12, and 13 says, There is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Even in laughter, the heart is sorrowful, and at the end of that mirth is heaviness. But I want to praise God because I had three sisters that were praying for me. Come on, is that the best you can do? See, if we understand, if we start to buy into this lie that's being spread in Christianity, that homosexuality is a blessing from God, and that the Bible is antiquated and doesn't really apply anymore, then you're going to stop praying for people like me. And I'm standing in front of you, not because of my prayers, but because of their prayers. And if you want power working in somebody's life, get on your knees and start praying for these people instead of condemning these people. Because they need somebody to, to intercede for them so that the Lord can open up opportunities to bring them in. I can't even begin to tell you how that happened for me. But my sister's husband had been unfaithful and they divorced. They were divorced for three years. I didn't like the guy. I was glad they were divorced. But unfortunately for me, my sister fell in love with her husband again. They both become converted. They fell in love and they were getting married again. Aww. Usually the girls go, aww. Well, I didn't think of it that way. I thought he was a jerk. I hated the guy. So I went to the wedding anyway, and there I am sitting in my, my condescending attitude in my Banana Republic suit. And I remember looking all sharp and thinking to myself, I had the world by the tail and that Christianity was for losers because you guys need something to hide behind because your lives are so pathetic. And as I'm sitting there enlightened in front of this church, my, my brother-in-law comes into the baptismal to get baptized before he marries my sister Laura the next day. And as he gets into the water, he walks over to the microphone and picks up the microphone. And I thought to myself, what is this jerk going to say? And he took the microphone and he made an open confession to the church about how he'd been unfaithful. How he stole the income tax return check. And how he had left his wife and family. He said he didn't want to be a husband or a, wife, or a, husband or a father anymore. And as he started to say these, these confessions, he thanked the church for their, for their help for his family while he was a deadbeat dad. He asked for their forgiveness. And he said... I want to make it right to God today so I can make it right to Lord tomorrow.
And as I was sitting in front of this man that I hated, these tears started coming down my face and I realized that I was not in the presence of my brother-in-law. I, I was in the presence of something much more powerful than I'd ever seen before. And even though I planned to act out sexually, even though I had this great guy at home, that night it was like I was Jacob wrestling with Jesus Christ all night long. I couldn't go out to the bars, I couldn't shower, I couldn't watch TV, I couldn't sleep. I was struggling with the things that I had seen that day because I saw a man come from death into life. And through a series of, of, of other things, my sister, my sister that was at home with me, um, the one on the right, Kathy, she worked with me in my salon. She, she was a faithful Christian. She never judged me or my friends. I had other homosexuals that worked in our salon, and she was always just as loving to them as she was to me. Even in my ignorance, even though I thought that she accepted me in my life, she did not stick her finger in my face and tell me that I was an abomination, that I was going to go to hell. Instead, she got on her knees and prayed for me. And she loved me. She would never hold me back from interacting with my nephew. She always invited my lovers over for holiday meals, but she prayed for me. And one day the Lord said, hey, invite your brother for that evangelistic series. She said, he'll never go, but I'll invite him. And when she did, I don't know why, but I agreed to go. And through a series, it was a, it was a black Caribbean Spanish preacher from L.A. who'd been in the gangs. And you know what? It was a gritty gospel, and it hit me right between the eyes. And here I am on the last night of the evangelistic series after I've been on vacation for 10 days with my boyfriend. But here I am sitting there in the, in the pastor made an altar call. And he said, for some of you tonight, you'll walk out of here and you'll never have another opportunity to accept the Lord again. And I knew that was me. And I sat there and I knew, I knew that I, that I wanted to give God my heart. But as I looked at my life, I said, no way, God, you'll never take me back the way I am. But the only truth that I had that night was about a piece of dental floss, faith. That's the only faith that I had about that much is that I knew that Jesus loved me for who I was. And I said, Lord, I can't go up there, but I give you my heart. And the next conscious thing I knew, I think an angel got on either side of me and marched me to the front. My sister was crying. Come on, sister, right? Amen. My sister was standing beside me. She was crying, and I go, how did you get here? And she said, I stood up when you did. <laughs> that night in the parking lot, she said, so what are you going to do about your boyfriend? I said, nothing. I'm gay. I said, I tried to change. I asked the Lord to change me, and that never happened. I said, all I know is that Jesus loves me for who I am. She never said another word. And like I said, I got baptized the next day, and nobody knew. No pastor should have baptized somebody like me, actively sexually acting out, active in a homosexual relationship. But the Lord says in his word, he says, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And I believe that the Lord knew that he had to get me into that water so that he could begin this work with me. And it was a really difficult process. It would have been much easier had I understood what I was committing to that day. But there were times when I would go to church and I would just feel too holy. And I would act out even on the Sabbath day and I would come back to God at the end of the day and I'd been so used to rejection from men beginning with my father and then the kids in school and then the illicit situation that I had. And I would just basically expect that I would wear out the patience of God himself. And I would come to God and I'd say, well, you saw what I did, Lord. You still want me? You know, you want to go down too? And each and every time as I came to God, as I was, dirty and defiled, his answer to me was always the same. Yeah, Mike, I still want you. I'm not going anywhere. I already paid for that. And while that didn't give me license to sin, it just said that I understand where you're at, Mike, and I'm willing to work this out if you're willing to come out and walk this out with me. And that broke my heart. And eventually I said, Lord, if you want me out of that relationship, you're going to have to do it yourself because I'm going to dig in my heels and I'm going to prove that if you can convert my boyfriend that we would be this mighty team for you. And the Lord said, I'll get right on that. And three weeks later, my boyfriend broke up with me. And I went home that night knowing that the Lord had spoken. And as I walked into my house, empty and alone, I realized that I wasn't straight. 
that nothing had changed that way, but the Lord delivered me from my homosexual relationship. And I thought to myself, well, I never know what it's like to love again. Well, I never know what it's like to have somebody hold me or to hold somebody else. And I started to cry these bitter tears. And as I was crying, there was no one that I could go to. I couldn't go to my sister because she would have been happy. I wasn't happy. I, I couldn't go to my friends because they would have said, Mike, you're gay. Go back to your boyfriend. What are you, crazy? And during that time, it was just me and Jesus Christ. And as I cried those bitter tears, it was Jesus that held me. And as I cried, it was Jesus that was loving me. And I started to realize the power of grace and the power of that intimate relationship that only he could restore. And then things started falling off. Amen. And I would like to say that it was perfect. I'd like to say that it was complete. But I have a phrase. Success is never final. But failure is never fatal. Does that make sense? Success is never final. But failure is never fatal. And so learning this process of being a Christian, walking out in this world that's dirty and defiled out there, it's a process. And even as an elder in my church, I fell back into my pornography addiction. And I had to learn the process of crawling back to God, dirty and defiled. But I had to understand what grace was really all about. And that 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, who is faithful? Did he say you were? No, he said he is faithful and just, not only to forgive me, but to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So if I confess my sins... Is there any unrighteousness on me? No, you don't really know that, do you? You don't believe it. Because you answer it the same way that everybody else does. Everybody's kind of like timid. It's his word. And he said it. And he has to stand by it. And if he says you're, cl you're cleansed from all unrighteousness, you are clean. Is that right? But that doesn't mean that five minutes later another dirty, nasty thought's going to come into your mind and you have to go through the process all over again. And then in, later in the New Testament it says, unto him who is able to keep you from falling. Jesus just doesn't want you to fall and then be forgiven. He wants you to be cleansed and to be freed from that issue. And that's a process. How many times did Haman have to dip into that, that, um, that filthy, dirty, nasty river before he was healed? Seven. And so what does seven represent? Perfection. Does that, say, does that still say 15 minutes? Oh, grace has been extended. Hallelujah. <laughs> I'm just delirious because I'm sleep deprived, so you'll have to suffer. I'm sorry. And so anyway, what happens is if God's word said that I am cleansed from all unrighteousness, I am clean. Because he said, I'm clean. It's the cleansing that he does, but it doesn't negate the fact that 15 minutes later, five minutes later, another thought will come into your head. It's what I do with it that's going to make the difference. And that he's willing to take the process. And so while seven represents perfection, there's a process to perfection. Doesn't that make sense? And so there's no statute of limitations on that verse. You can use it as often as you need it because God was the one, Jesus Christ was the one that provided the safety net for all of us. He had to do it perfectly without a safety net. But he provided that safety net for you so that if you fall, you can find a way out. Amen. We need to be more, more, more patient with people. We, we need to give people more grace as we understand the gospel. And I think it's so sad that you didn't know that you were cleansed from all unrighteousness when you confessed your sins. And so as I was learning this process, it was really difficult for me because I wasn't getting that word in the church. And so as I fell as an elder back into my sin, I was convicted by some of the quotes that I was reading. God didn't say stop being gay. What he said was stop resisting me. And as I learned to stop resisting God, I had to change the way I thought about God. I thought that God was like my dad, arbitrary, looking to judge me, looking to pull the rug out from under me, looking to steal away my salvation. 
But as I started to learn about Jesus Christ, I started to learn that in John 14, 9, it says, He that has seen me has seen the Father. And the beautiful image that I had of Jesus Christ, who was my Savior, who would walk this out with me, I had to make that application now to my Father. Am I the only one? Did any of you have a rotten father? Maybe some of you didn't even have a father, and so you don't even have an image about who God is. And so doesn't that make sense that Satan would try to destroy your ability to relate to God as loving? Even though we go to church week after week, we still have this odd thought in our head that God is looking to judge us or to cheat us. My mother died December 24th this year. And it was, I was in Cuba, thank you. I was in Cuba on December um, 10th, and I called my mother. And my mother said this, she said, Mike, I'm gonna try to wait for you. I'm gonna wait for you to come home. And on the 17th, I got home, and my mother had stopped eating and drinking. She had stopped speaking, and I thanked my mom. I said, Mom, I'm here. I said, thank you for waiting. I said, do you know who I am? And she nodded, she nodded yes. And I said, who am I? And she said, Michael. And in that process of learning that, that my mom, that my mom, even though she, she still knew who I was, that process of, of understanding that kind of love, I'm not even sure why I brought that up. Because <laughs> I'm sleep deprived. What's that? So even in that process of learning that, ah, the resisting of God, learning that God was good. And you know, if you didn't have a good example of what a father was like, then doesn't it make sense that Jesus was the one that's gonna teach you that? And it was Jesus that was teaching me that and learning the process that I can trust God and instead of running from him, I could run to him. SCA Kinship. It's a group that's been moving around for about 35 years, and they have places internationally now. And what they're trying to do is change the face of Adventism. In every Christian denomination, there's a group just like them. In the, uh, in the Mennonite church, they have what's called the Pink Minnows. And it's the same group. And what they're doing is they're infiltrating all of these Christian churches, trying to change our attitudes about homosexuality and, and make it acceptable. As a matter of fact, some of our leadership in Loma Linda University in the religion department were saying that Paul and Moses are irrelevant, that their words should be stricken from the Bible. Does anyone remember what the Bible says if you take out some of the words of the Bible? What happens, right? Anyway, so this is a woman. She's a gay activist. She says the words that I couldn't say. Pull out your phones and take a picture. It's a really good quote. If you were to say these words, this would be considered hate speech. But what about a lesbian activist? What if she says this? She says, is the gay identity so fragile that it cannot bear the thought that some people may not wish to be gay? She says, sexuality is highly fluid and reversals are theoretically possible. However, habit is refractory and that means very difficult to change. Once the sensory pathways have been blazed and deepened by repetition, it's a phenomenon that's obvious in the struggle with obesity, smoking, alcohol, and drug addiction, helping gays to learn how to function heterosexually, here you go, if they wish, is a perfectly worthy aim. She goes on and she says something even stronger. She says, homosexuality is not normal. On the contrary, it's a challenge to the norm. Nature exists whether academics like it or not, and in nature, procreation is the single relentless rule. That is the norm. Our sexual bodies were designed for reproduction. No one is born gay. Did you hear that? A lesbian activist says that no one is born gay. The idea is what? Homosexuality is an adaptation, not an inborn trait. And even though she says exactly how I feel about the issue, she still has the right to decide, isn't that right? She has the right to decide if she wants to be a lesbian or not, and so do I. 
I have the right to decide if I want to be transgender. I have the right to decide if I want to still be a homosexual. And after being introduced to Jesus Christ, after experiencing Him in a way that I've never experienced Him before, how is it that I can say that the love of God is better than an illicit situation? Because I've experienced Him. And while I cannot see Him, and while I cannot feel Him tangibly touch me, I can feel His effect in me and on me. And that's why I choose to walk this walk. This is my house in the country. The Lord moved me from the city of Orlando where I was around five K-bars within two miles. I could have walked to one. And then here he moves me to the country where I spent the last 15 years. That's, that's the house I left yesterday or this morning, I guess. And so here I was cutting hair in the basement, learning this walk, walking with God through the country, the hillside, some amazing stories. But all of a sudden, all of a sudden, one day, as, I was, as this guy owed me some firewood, he said, Mike, listen, come over to my house tomorrow, and we're going we're gonna to cut that firewood. And so I prayed the next morning. I said, Lord, I know I need to butch it up, and I know I need to learn to be more masculine. So I'm going to go, and I hope I don't have to work that chainsaw because I could split my head open or cut my leg off. But I'm going. And so <laughs> what color am I wearing? So anyway, I went to my brother's house, right, my friend's house, and, and he said, listen, Mike, I'm going to have you work the skid steer. Do you all know what a skid steer is? Of course. It's, it's Washington, D.C. Of course you wouldn't know what a skid steer is. But back in the woods, a skid steer is a machine, and it's got tires like a tank, and it's got a shovel on the front of it. It's got these two joysticks, and one of them moves the machine, and you back it up, you move it forward, you turn it right, you turn it left, and the other joystick controls the shovel on the front. And my job is to pick up these trees that are already cut down, lift up the tree, turn it, take it over to my friend Mark, who's in the truck, and tilt it so that he can cut it. Doesn't that sound pretty butch? And so this was my job. And so he gave me five minutes tutorial on this machine before I got started. But before that, my job was to take a can of brightly colored spray paint and to mark these trees where we were going to cut them so that they would fit into my wood stove. Are you following me? Yeah. Okay, you city slickers, are you with me? All right, so as I start to do this thing, a couple of times I bit the dirt, I tipped the thing over, I'd have to learn how to sit it back upright. But then I got going and we were cutting these trees and we worked you know, throughout the morning. When I was done, he said, you know, Mike, you did a really great job for somebody who hadn't worked a skid steer before. He didn't emasculate me. He didn't make fun of me. And we took the wood to my house, and we had a hot drink. It was a cold day, and we started talking. He started to talk about his love for his father. He started to talk about how he had, at 17 years old, he had vandalized his father's business. He got arrested, spent the night in jail. He thought about how mad his dad would be. But his dad came to him the next day in jail, and he said, Mark, let's get out of here. You hungry? And then on his deathbed, he said, he talked about how his father took him by the hand and squeezed his hand and said, Mark, promise me that we'll be in heaven together. Promise me that your family and you, that we'll all be in heaven together. And as I'm sitting in front of this macho guy wearing a flannel shirt about six foot two, these tears started to come down this guy's face. And I looked at him and I thought, wow, dude. And I looked at him and I said, you know, that's a really great story, Mark, but I don't really relate. I said, let me tell you about my dad. My dad's now an elder in the church, and so am I. And I read this book once, and it's talked about healing homosexuality, that if the homosexual can find validation by his birth father, that there's great healing in that, reconciliation. And I thought to myself, well, my dad's an Adventist, I'm an Adventist, my dad's an elder, I'm an elder. This should be an easy thing, right? And so every time that I saw my father, more emasculation, more insults, more competition, when really what I wanted was my father's love. And so 
I got used to it. Every time that I would get rejected by my dad, I'd act out sexually. I'd have to go to God and ask for forgiveness. Then I'd have to forgive my dad, the whole process. And so after a while, you get weary, right? My mother was turning 70 years old, and so I determined that I was going to go see my mother. My father lived several, you know, like two hours away from her. And the Holy Spirit said, why don't you see your dad? And I said, no, I'm not going. I'm done. And the Lord just kept pushing me and urging me that I should go see my father. And finally, on Saturday morning, Sabbath, I woke up, and the Lord was really impressing me that I should see my father. And I said, all right, Lord, you must know something that I don't. I'll go. And so I went to my father's church. My father preached the sermon. Afterwards, we were in the fellowship room, and I'm sitting there with all my family, my, my um, stepbrother on one side of me and my nephew on the other side. I'm 47-year-old bald man in a suit, okay? Just get that picture. And as I'm sitting there with these two guys, they're trying to tickle me, but quite frankly, I'm not ticklish anymore. I'm just that old. And so as we're doing this little game back and forth, my father comes around. My father now, he comes around, and he stands behind me, and he reaches down, and he grabs my knee in an effort to play. And I thought, all right, this is reconciliation, right? And so to return the gesture, I turn around while my dad is standing behind me and I'm sitting in the chair. I turn around and I grab my dad by the knee, you know, in an effort to play. My father jerked his leg back and he took his hand and he swung it around his head and he smacked me on top of my bald head in front of my family and these people that I don't even know. The humiliation was so much more painful than the slap. And as I sat there humiliated, I thought to myself, that's right, dad always has to have the last, last, um, last word. I got up, I never said goodbye to my family, I never said goodbye to my dad. I, I walked out of church, I was done. I got in my car and I drove away and I said to God, are you happy, God? Did you get what you wanted? Because I sure didn't. I hope you got something out of that. I listened to you, I obeyed you, and this is what I get. And I had to go through the process again of forgiving my dad. You know, and it took about a week or two, but then I started calling my dad. My dad said he should probably apologize. He said that to my sister, but he never said that to me. But I reconciled. I did what God asked me to do. Three months later, I was at church, and my sister came up to me at church, and she said our father had passed away on the side of the road, massive heart failure. And as I was holding my sister and she was weeping, I looked up into the sky, and Jesus spoke to me, and he said, that's why I wanted you to see your dad. He said, Mike, the fact that you obeyed me and you went to see your father, even though it looked like I was setting you up, he said, you obeyed me. He said, I was hoping that you and your father would find reconciliation. He said, but I couldn't force your dad any more than I could force you. But you listened to me. He said, now you have no guilt or condemnation about what if you had seen him, that you obeyed me, and because of that, you are free. And I realized the meaning for why God had me to go. And as I shared that with my friend Mark, I said, listen, Mark, I said, you've done more for my masculinity today just because you didn't make fun of me or tease me. He said, Mike, you've taught me something too. He said, I thought that homosexuals would burn in a hotter hell than everybody else. He said, by spending the, <laughs> right? And he said, by spending the day with you today, I realize that you're no different than me. He said, I have different attractions than you do. He said, but we all struggle with lust. I said, we have to learn that process. And you know what? I have a really good friend still to this day because of that. And so my friend said, listen, I got another job. I got to go. You're going to have to split this wood yourself and stack it. And so I don't even know if the picture's here. Is it here? Nope, sorry. Let's go back. Bink, bink. All right, so anyway, as I started splitting this wood, I start, you know, splitting this wood, and it's really tough. Have you ever split wood? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, all right. Even a lady, she split wood. You're not from around here, are you? <laughs> I'm kidding. And so as I was splitting this wood and stacking it in front of my house, you know, all of a sudden it would get really tough, and I'd say, eh, I'm done. I'll just hire somebody to get it done. And the Holy Spirit would say, just turn it and hit it again. 
And I would do that. And there's this little bald 47-year-old man jumping up and down in his yard because today I'm a man, right? And I'm stacking this wood in front of my house for all of my clients to see. I have this nice circular driveway in front of my house. And as my clients would come, they would see that wood. And they'd say, ooh, who stacked that wood for you? And I'd go, I did. I split that and stacked that. And I drove a skid steer, right? Right? And then all of a sudden, as I'm looking down at this wood that I'm stacking up in front of my house for everybody to see, I look down and I go, what? And I realized that there's hot pink spray paint all over my wood. The can of spray paint that I was using to mark the wood before I would cut it was hot pink spray paint. And so now I got hot pink spray paint all over my masculine wood. Can you imagine that? And I started laughing just like you did. And I go, of course. My most masculine moment and I got pink wood. And so as I'm thinking about this, Jesus started to speak to me. And he said, Mike, you're that wood. I said, what? He said, yeah, you're that wood. And he said, when you stop and think about it, he said, I made you in your natural shape. He said, I made you that wood. That's who you are. He said in Psalms 139, he said that I created the male and female in Genesis. But in Psalms 139, God was pursuing me. He said, whether you go into the dark or the lightness, it doesn't matter. It's all the same to me. He said, you can go up and you can go low, but I'm right there behind you. He said, my thoughts towards you are as countless as the sands of the seashore, and I made you male. I knit your delicate inward parts together in your mother's womb. There was no question who you were intended to be. Before the world was shaped, I knew you, and I knew you to be a man because that's who I made you to be. He said, but Mike, that pink is the artificial. That's the overspray. I didn't put that on you. That didn't come from me. That's what heredity and cultivated tendencies have done to you. And how like God to take seven years to answer that question that I had when I came back into a relationship with him. I wanted to know how this happened. And here he gives me this perfect object lesson that I can actually learn from and realize that I'm not that pink wood, I'm the wood. And that the artificial, what the world has put on me is what the world wants me to take as my identity, but I reject that. And even though I still may struggle with same-sex attraction, I also struggle with heterosexual attraction, too. So imagine going through puberty in your 40s. <laughs> this lady over here, she goes, <laughs> what? But the Lord holds us together, isn't that right? He guarantees to do that. If we'll just submit to him, if we'll just stop resisting him. And you know, it's not a gay thing, it's not a straight thing, a bisexual thing, or a transgender thing. It's a sin thing, isn't that right? And we all struggle with sinful tendencies. I hope that you'll come back tomorrow. I hope that you'll bring a friend. I hope that you'll bring an open mind. I hope that you'll bring questions because we really want to start talking about some of these things that are taking our church down. And we need to let people know that the power of Jesus Christ is still alive today. If we accept, if we accept sin as God's desire or God's design, then what we're doing is we're basically saying that Jesus, what he accomplished on the cross was for nothing and that Jesus is impotent to heal us against sin. Is that right? Who, who is the one promoting that message? That's right, that's the enemy. We need to show that the power of Jesus Christ is still alive and well today. Don't deny me the power of Jesus Christ to transform my life. Is that fair to say? Can we stand together as we close in prayer? You've been very patient, thank you. You wouldn't believe how many signs I've had in the back. Five minutes, shut your mouth, close it up. Or... Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I praise you, Lord, for this opportunity to tell once again the beautiful, beautiful things that you've done in my life. And they haven't been easy. Lord, I have tested your patience so many times. But your love, Lord, is so overwhelming. I have no choice but to come back to you. Where else would I go, Lord? And if you can still satisfy those, 
those deep issues for me still, Lord, I'll follow you until the end. And I pray, Father, that something that I said tonight, something that may have been shared, would have made a difference in somebody's heart or somebody's life. Lord, maybe it's even developed some questions for them. But I know, Lord, that you'll answer them because if you would do that for me, you delight to answer that for them. And I pray, Father, for every mother and father that's here that may have a child that's LGBT or maybe have a child that's out into the world. Lord, give them the assurance. Give them, the, give them hope, Lord, to know that you have the power to still save lives today. And as we unpack sexuality, Lord, as we start to really talk about some of these issues, about premarital sex, pornography, masturbation, all of these hideous words, Lord, that I know must make you cringe. But I know, Lord, you're willing to look at it. I know that you're willing to address it all because you don't see us for who we are. You see us, Lord, for who we can be. And Lord, I'm a recipient of that love. And so, Lord, until my voice is gone, I will continue to give you praise as long as you give me breath. And I pray, Lord, that you will bless us as we continue our time together. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.